You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The way other people fantasize about surprise inheritances, first-glance love, and endless white imperial pastures, Mitchell dreamed of an erupting supervolcano that would bury North America under a foot of hot ash. He envisioned a nuclear exchange with China, a modern black plague, an asteroid tearing apart the crust of the earth, unleashing a new dark age. Such singularities didn't frighten him, he claimed. They offered freedom. They opened wormholes to a sublime realm of fantasy and chaos. Worst-case scenarios, he said, were for him games of logic. How vast a nightmare could he imagine, and to what level of precision? What was possible? What should we be afraid of? We knew that Mitchell's logic games line was a bluff. Worst-case scenarios filled him with very real terror. Late in the evening, he raced out of his bedroom in a panic, cheeks flushed, eyes haunted. He flipped on his desk lamp, pounded numbers into his calculator, and scrawled equations and odds ratios. It was a near-nightly ritual. The next morning, we'd find him there asleep, face down on his papers, his cheek ink-stained with numbers like a prison tattoo. Nathaniel Rich is the author of San Francisco Noir, and his first novel was The Mayor's Tongue. His new novel is Odds Against Tomorrow. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. This is such a wonderful book about fear, what we should fear, what we do fear, and how fear matters. When you conceived this book, did you conceive of the character first or the fear? Well, I wanted to write about obsession, first of all, and I, I feel that the obsession of our of culture now is fear, that we're a fear-obsessed culture. You can't um, wake up and check your email or read a newspaper or check you know, Facebook or Twitter without finding some horrific thing that's happened or, or that might happen that we should be afraid of, whether it's on the level of uh, you know, nuclear war or terrorism or avian flu or the, the longer-term lurking uh, fears about climate change and, and ecological uh, transformation and catastrophe. So I, I knew I wanted to write about these things in some way. And then I was having a conversation with a friend from college who uh, was working in high finance in New York, and he would <laughs> tell me from time to time, uh, for amusement, would tell me some sort of secrets of the trade, some kind of high-level shenanigans that he was observing. And he told me about this new job uh, in risk consulting, high-level high catastrophe risk consulting, and that started me going. I love the character of Mitchell Zukor. He's such so much fun to be with, and I'd like you to talk about finding his voice and finding him and his obsession with fear and the way you brought that into language because the language of this book is really superb. Thanks. I I, I don't know if there's a clear, clear answer that I have for that. It's just a character that I've li- I lived with for five or six years and he evolved over that time as I evolved. And I, you know, I knew people like him in college. I knew people who were uh, math geniuses but socially maladjusted and had fascin- fascinating little obsessions and, and uh, fanaticisms. And, and I feel like part of me is like that as well. So I really wanted to explore uh, 
and have fun with uh, obsession and especially, you know, obsessions about worst case scenarios, which, you know, I, I tend to, to go through these little wormholes myself. It's sort of kind of internet wormholes where I'll, I'll, I'll fixate on something horrible, like, for instance, uh, the Yellowstone uh, super volcanoes, giant volcano beneath Yellowstone National Park that has erupted twice, both times, all but uh, destroying every species alive at the time on, on the planet. Uh, the first time was 2.1 million years ago. The last time was something like 700,000 years ago. Um, and so, it, you know, depending on how you calculate it, you know, we're due. And so, so I, 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 I've spent time just going to the USGS website where they monitor uh, the readings from the volcano and, and people make predictions about when it's going to go off and, you know, is it going to happen next week or in another 2 million years? Uh, this is a matter of some debate. So... You know, I wanted to have fun with that and try to understand really what, you know, what are the odds of these things happening? Why do we fixate on, on all of these worst case scenarios? Which ones are real? Do we really have to worry about an asteroid hitting the planet? Is this a real thing? And, and also, you know, about why do we, why, why do these things become fixations? Is it just because of the technology that we now have access to so much information? Uh, is it about something that's happening in our culture? Um, is it an American thing? And... So I wanted to find a character who could safely explore those things and, and take them beyond what maybe a normal person would, would do, take, take their anxieties further, and, and also would be able to sort of intellectually pose these questions himself as well. The crux of the book is the creation of this corporation, Future World, which uh, clearly came out of your uh, research and your conversations with your friend about these new a new breed of financial products that are essentially created out of math it, these products have nothing to do with anything with reality they're just looking for crevices in the math out of which one can eke profit yeah and and i should say my original understanding of what my friend told me was completely false <laughs> or wrong, wrong i misunderstood what he was saying i mean i'm not myself uh, you know an economic i never took economics classes in college um, but but i it was true enough that I was able to use it. And, and later, much later, once I, the book was about to come out, I started to panic and wondered, well, is this, there's a sort of legal loophole in the novel. Like, can, can this actually happen? Does this type of thing happen? And of course, it, you know, a version of this did happen in the, in the crash in 2008. It's, it's um, you know, I learned about this, this, this type of risk consulting in 2007, but I think at the time we already knew that there was some shady stuff happening in high finance. And it was confirmed and, you know, articulated by what we learned uh, afterwards. And so uh, when I was actually seeing whether something like Future World could exist in reality, I went back to friends in this world and they said, oh, yeah, there's absolutely there are things like this. There are countless things like this. And there's often little uh, legislature passed in the state of New York where some state senator with whose buddies with someone on Wall Street, or not even buddies, just is hoping to curry favor, will put in a little loophole to create new types of business. And, and so I was relieved that I actually didn't have to change anything there because it's, this stuff goes on all the time. And I think we know that it goes on all the time. We have a sense of this going on all the time, especially in the last few years. But it's only the people in this world that know the details and, and can profit off of them. In your novel, Mitchell Zucor, who's this quant, he's a math genius, 
he comes to work for a future world where he gets his dream job, and I think maybe yours, predicting catastrophes and the kinds of catastrophes and the chances of catastrophes and the way you write about them. It's a blast. And I guess you must have had a lot of fun doing the research for this book. Yeah, I haven't quite figured out why it was so fun because it's essentially just finding out different ways we could die um, and different things that we should worry about for the rest of our lives and, and for the rest of the lives of our children, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's absolutely something thrilling about, about imagining disaster. And I enjoyed it very much going into the details of you know what exactly will happen when an earthquake hits Seattle, the next one, you know, what happened in the past. Uh, it was, it, you know, it's not just, I wasn't just reading reports by scientists uh, and federal agencies about scenarios that could happen in the future, but I was reading about things that have happened in the past, like the Dust Bowl, accounts of previous earthquakes, accounts of previous storms, like the one that wiped Galveston from the face of the earth. I mean, some of the accounts of that storm around 1900 are incredible, incredibly rich and, and, and detailed. And I used a lot of that for the, for the novel. But yeah, there's something very fun about it. I think part of it has to do with uh, you're able to experience this sort of visceral thrill of, of high-stakes events without actually being harmed by them because it's, you know, it's a work of imagination. And you also get the sense of relief that this hasn't happened yet. <laughs> So there's, there's something kind of, it's a safe way to explore your fears. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very close to the, the type of thrill you get from reading a great horror novel. I mean, I spent most of my childhood reading Stephen King, and I was terrified reading those books, but I also found it thrilling and really exciting, and I, I, don't, I couldn't really figure out why at the time, you know, when I was reading these books at 9, 10, 11, and so on. But I think it has to do with this, where it's, you get to experience your worst fears, but in a safe way, and and you kind of um, vanquish them in the process. You call Mitchell when one of your characters calls Mitchell at one point uh, the origin a natural born terrorist <laughs> because he's so good at evoking terror in people. And I think that this speaks to what you were talking about that articulating our fears, just describing them, is a is a way of relieving them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, and we now live at a time where, where you, you were in this kind of vicious cycle of, of media terror in, in the sense that we're constantly being informed by the press about all kinds of scary things. And, and then you become, at a certain point, you become, when you're inundated with this, you become numb, I think. So the press, you have to, they have to push it even further, you know, so it's like you never have a snowstorm anymore. It's a snowpocalypse, you know. <laughs> uh, you don't just have a, a kind of uh, someone kills another person. You have like a spree or a madman or, you know, I mean, you know the terminology. It's, it's everything's amped up and amped up. And I, th I you know, I wonder when we're going to reach some end of that or or do we need it? Do we thrive on it? You know, I think I think fear sells. I mean, if you look at you go to one of these aggregating websites, news websites, for instance, you tend to see two types of stories. One is celebrity and two stories, you know, and two is uh, apocalypse <laughs> of some kind or another. You know, this is the avian flu that's going to get us. This is 10 reasons why the stock market is going to go to zero in the, in the next two years. 
um, this is the reason why North Korea is going to start launching bombs, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's, you know, fear is big business, and that's what sells. And I, and I, I wanted to write about that and try to understand it through writing about it better. You describe Mitchell in college as being obsessed with fear, and then at one point he and all his friends see uh, this earthquake unfold in Seattle. And one of the things I think you said that was really interesting in that passage was in that moment, in that disaster, everyone was Mitchell Zucor. Yeah, I think, I think there's something very satisfying in a perverse way about you know, when you're the person who cries wolf all the time and no one pays attention, and then all of a sudden the wolf shows up at your door ready to, to devour you and your family, there's something actually kind of satisfying and validating about that. And, and in the same way, you know, yeah, I think the culture passes through phases. I mean, we did very recently with what happened, the terrorism in Boston where everybody, everybody becomes transfixed by some horrific scenario. Uh, and then over time people forget people and it passes you know or you see that with certain environmental uh, catastrophes like say uh, bp uh, spilling in the gulf everyone was horrified and very upset and protesting but then it passes and the only people who really care about it now are people who live in new orleans like me and eat eat the seafood uh, that maybe is poisoned with dispersant you know from the from the cleanup so uh and yet it sits in the back of people's heads. And so, so, so I wanted to write about, well, what, you know, what happens there? Like, do, do people just block it out? Do, do they do so? I mean, you know, how can they forget about these atrocities that happen and not focus on it all the time? But at the same time, if we did focus on it all the time, of course, you'd go crazy. Um, and so where, where do you draw the line? You know, where, where do you find a balance? I think it's probably different for everybody. Um, and, and for me, you know, I, I probably tend more towards... Uh, anxiety about things that I can't control, but I'm not quite at Mitchell's level. But it's but I think this is this is kind of a conundrum that people have now. Anybody living today has to figure out for yourself. Do you know? Do you blot out the bad news? Do you become overwhelmed by it? Do you become cynical, uh, or is there some other other way out? And and I think that's something we all struggle with. In the prose, you evoke all this humor, and I'm wondering. If you felt that humor when you were writing it, or, or were thinking, "Boy, am I am I a sick person?" <laughs> there are moments where I think I might be sick, like the terrorism line. That you, I mean, you don't want to throw around the word terrorism too much, uh, but but I couldn't resist calling him a natural-born terrorist, you know, in the new sense of the word. Uh, but yeah, I always think of Stephen King again when he I, when he was writing when when he's writing really well. He knows something when he's writing something really terrifying. Um, he knows it because he's interrupted in his writing by his wife, complaining that he's laughing too hard, <laughs> too loudly, uh, disturbing her. So you know he's like cackling uh, when he's writing the most horrific things. Um, you know, I think of him writing something like The Shining, just laughing hysterically. And I, I felt like that too. I mean, I think anytime you write something that's really any, any, you know, humor comes out of surprise and, and usually a surprise that reveals something true. And fear, you know, and horror works the same way. It comes out of uh, a surprise that reveals something to be true, but it, you sort of are falling on the other side of this knife's edge um, into horror instead of, instead of black comedy. And I wanted to, to 
go along that line. And, and I think readers will have different interpretations. I mean, I think some of it's very funny, but I, I think other people, I mean, I had a reading recently, a, a woman came up to me and said, gosh, I really, after the reading, I really liked the book, but I was a little bit unnerved uh, by how much everybody was laughing during the reading. <laughs> and, and I thought it was just really scary and horrible. And I love that response because it, it, if it's done well, then I think people can, will have either, can, can react in either way. It's, it, you're right. And I think you do, well, you do get both responses in the book. There are portions where you're laughing and other portions where you, you can't laugh. And we'll get to those portions. But one of the things I, I like about this book is that your sense of the story in it. And early on, there's, I think, a very telling sentence where uh, some, right, Mitchell thinks, the numbers were beginning to tell a story. It was very important to me that the, the story moved and, and that it read at least somewhat like a thriller. I mean, I was... I was trying to use certain conventions without falling into kind of genre or cliche, but you, you know, borrow certain conventions from noir novels, for instance, um, and horror novels uh, as well, to make sure that the story moved quickly, that it was, it was gripping, that it was, there was suspense. I feel like for a novel about fear, you need that. Otherwise, it might become too cold or technical. There's also a lot of technical information in the book that I thought was crucial because exactly as you, you, you say, at some points you can't laugh. The reason you can't laugh is because all of the information is real. Um, all of it you know, comes from research. And that was very important to me. It's not scary unless it's not real, right? And it's not funny if it's not, <laughs> if it's not real either. And so, but also to offset all of that information um, that, that Mitchell is, is acquiring through his job and through his life, I wanted the story to be to move really swiftly, and, and so that was important. You know, when you talk about the uh, all the information, <clears throat> that's one of the things I think you do incredibly well. Talk about taking all this kind of data, and yet writing about it in a way that's really entertaining. This is could be on mishandled. This could be like reading. Uh, research instead it's exciting and funny and scary thanks well i mean I, my method i think was simply to take um these relatively abstract um pieces of information networks of information and try to make them um real to a reader and to myself by using um by using story by using characters and so you know there are a lot of facts in the book but but i try to always sort of cut them with um, real-life, ex- you know, manifestations of the facts. So, for instance, there's a story at one point when he's going, when he's becoming really obsessed by all the information uh, about a huge uh, tsunami or earthquake that separates part of uh, an island from another part of the island, or separates a, a little piece of the coast off of off the coast, and, and then there's a little anecdote about it. Uh, that the line in the ground breaks directly through a couple's be- uh, bed, and the husband drifts off on one side in his bed, off into the sea, and the woman stays on the shore. And 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 that to me was was that's the kind of thing I wanted to do throughout, where you have a human a human aspect to these huge large case uh, large scale worst case scenarios, and and so I, I wanted never to lose track of the fact that. 
all of these horrific things are happening to people, real people. <laughs> and, and that's where the drama, the drama derives from that, not, not the scenarios in the abstract, but in the way that our lives are affected. Well, to a degree, I couldn't help but think that you yourself bear a similarity to Mitchell Zucker in your ability to, they toot his ability to him because he has the right mix of technical knowledge and personal despair. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty good description of, of me writing this novel. <laughs> <clears throat> there are some really interesting uh, kind of side uh, sidebars here, and one of the things I thought was was really well handled was the story of Elsa Bruner. So talk a little bit about that, working that in, because that gives the whole, casts uh, an interesting shadow throughout the whole narrative. Yeah, so there's this character of Elsa Bruner who in some ways is a, is a human worst case scenario, a walking worst case scenario, because she has this rare heart condition that's a real condition uh, called Brugada, Brugada syndrome, where you're totally healthy except your heart can stop at any any point <laughs> and uh, sometimes you, it causes you to faint and and so Mitchell is transfixed by this this idea and by this this girl because she herself is sort of blithely optimistic idealistic uh, goes to Maine to start a commune um, far away from any hospital. She doesn't really even think about being close to some hospital where she could be treated if she actually does have an episode. And in the novel, she represents a kind of, uh, opposite philosophical pole, obviously, to, to Mitchell. And he's hoping by corresponding with her, as they do through letters, that he'll understand her secret. He'll understand how she can go through her life and be a happy, contented person and think about the, into the future, whereas he, who really has nothing immediate to fear, really uh, healthy, has a good job in New York, is just racked with anxiety all day long. And he's hoping to learn something from her that can that can help him. And and he's frustrated by it. And I, it was important to me that she she remained a kind of abstract figure. Um, you know, we don't really see her in the novel except for a couple glimpses in the flesh. And I thought it was an interesting way to for Mitchell to work through his ideas um, by 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 sort of throwing them off of, of her or, or by you know holding them up to her uh, very opposite ideas and and I think he uh, it also reflects what's going on with him early in the novel where he's creating all these fantasies and in a sense Elsa is is another fantasy just as as these worst case scenarios are are their own types of fantasies. Well, fortunately for uh, Mitchell, Elsa is not the only, the fantasy Elsa is not the only woman in his life. <laughs> you give him a, a, a co-worker, Jane, and she's a lot of fun too. And I think you, this is could be a difficult situation for you to handle as a writer, given the way you craft Mitchell. But I think you bring the, bring her into the picture well. Talk about creating this character and giving her a voice that's like Mitchell's, but not quite. Yeah, I mean, she's like Mitchell in that she, she gets the same job. She's hired out of, out of Wharton and to become a fear consultant. And she's great at the work, but her method is totally different in that she's extremely cynical about all of the scenarios that she's predicting. But she loves the sale, and she loves making money through fear. Whereas Mitchell is happy to make money, but he's really actually terrified of all the things that he's predicting. And, he's, and so she represents another kind of problem for him in that 
here she is aware of all of the horrible things that can go wrong, but she doesn't care and she loves it and she loves to use it for profit. And so there's something kind of cynical about her, but I think after a certain point, you realize that there's also a, a vulnerability to her as well. And she's more of a real life breathing character. And she's, that character is, is, is one that uh, through the writing of the novel became more and more um, central to, to the story. And I felt that it was, uh, I liked their relationship. I really liked Jane. I mean, I identified with a lot of her character um, this kind of New York cynicism with a kind of soft, mushy center <laughs> deep down. And, and, and uh, you know, and the ending, and she, you know, her, her, her story is, becomes very important, increasingly important, really, as the novel goes on, especially in the final pages of the book. Mitchell's work for Future World leads him to make a, a variety of predictions, and one of which transforms him, as you say, from a fantasist to a prophet. You experienced the same transformation, I believe, as you were writing this book. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about how that made you feel and how that informed the creation of the book, which is so stunningly uh, rendered in the central section of the book. Well, I had the idea very early on that there should be some major worst-case scenario that happens in the second act. And Having done a little bit of research, I, I realized that, well, the most likely scenario is that a catastrophic uh, hurricane would hit New York and cause massive flooding. And so I, I wrote, you know, so I wrote the novel, as it is, and, and I, I had to um, endure five or six actual hurricane seasons, because it took me about five or six years to write the book, uh, during which I thought, you know, is this going to be the year that I'm going to have to throw out the novel because this thing actually does happen? Because I knew that it was, you know, if not likely, there was a, a you know, a fair likelihood that a, a major hurricane could hit New York. So every hurricane season, I would sort of watch, keep an eye on all the developing tropical storms in the in the Caribbean and so on coming up the seaboard. Um, and I thought I was in, out of, you know, I thought I was in the clear... Uh, going into the novel's publication, I was, and, and I was reading the final galleys of the book, um, sort of the final copy edits uh, in late October, which is, I think, really after the hurricane season ends, when Sandy came, came around. And uh, I was terrified, of course. I mean, not only for New York and my, nat my native city, but also for my novel. Um, and it was bad, but it's, it's not quite as bad as the Tammy in the novel. And I actually didn't have to change anything. I mean, very selfishly, I can say I was relieved that I didn't actually have to change anything because, in fact, uh, everything that had been predicted by the Army Corps of Engineers and other government agencies and, and scientists whose reports I had drawn from in order to write the, these sections, or at least to have the technical information for these sections, of the novel, uh, they were right, they were accurate. So I didn't actually have to rewrite anything. I had to put in one paragraph about Sandy in a scene where Mitchell's reviewing past um, flood scenarios. And, it, and since the novel takes place in the near future, um, it would be a little odd if he said, well, the last time there was flooding, it was 1992, you know, in the Great Nor'easter. So I had to put in one little thing about Sandy, but I didn't really have to change anything else. And it, it's, it was very surreal, very weird to wake up and you know, see images of a flooded New York and anxiety producing. But the book was really done at that point. There wasn't much I could do. And fortunately, 
they didn't decide to cancel it, you know. <laughs> um, I guess if it was a Category 3 and, and, it, and it really did even worse damage, um, that would be a con- kind of conversation one would have. But uh, it, I think it's had the effect of, of making the most fantastical element of the plot seem actually very realistic. Um, and, and so I think it's changed the way readers come to the book, but I, I don't know if that's, you know, for the best or for the worst, but I think it's, uh, unavoidable. I knew it was going to happen at some point. I knew, you know, I was counting on at some point the storm was going to come and people are going to be like, wait a minute, wasn't there that book that, you know, predicted this, but it just actually happened right before publication. The scenes that you write about set in New York, uh, the flooded New York are really compelling and beautiful. And one of the things that is interesting is that this is part of a kind of a turn you do, modulating the tone of the book from primarily humorous to something a little darker. And I'd like you to talk about mo- making that turn, narrative turn, and then you're immersing yourself in, in this vision of a flooded New York. Yeah, I felt that you know there is there is humor in the later sections but the the there is a slight tonal shift um and and it reflects what's happening with mitchell the character he's um going from a place of extreme passivity and anxiety and sitting in a room obsessing all day basically looking at spreadsheets and websites to being forced to be his own person to actually make decisions to to deal with real catastrophe um, firsthand. And so I didn't feel the same, you know, a lot of the humor in the first part comes from a kind of remove and kind of the silliness of his obsession or the, the extremeness of it. And in the second section, it becomes real. And so it's, you know, the, there's the humor is muted because it's in the, he's now all of a sudden in the middle of a real, horror show you know a real catastrophe and that was the design from the beginning I mean I felt that was important uh, and it I wanted the tone to mirror the character's evolution as he goes along there are lots of really interesting uh, literary uh, techniques used in here and some call outs and at one point you uh, mentioned uh, Becker's denial of death Mm -hmm. which I I could not help but be reminded of uh, my favorite line from Italo Svevo, who haunted your last novel, which is about life is the disease that admits but one cure, which is uh, uh, has a lot to do with uh, the the theme of this novel. It's funny. I thought a lot about the the end of uh, of La Coscienza di Zeno um, by Svevo where he talks about, you know, one day there will be a great bomb or it'll destroy everything, or a great plague that I mean, destroys the whole planet and will finally be cured, you know, will finally be clean, cleansed. And I think that uh, the flood has that effect, you know, and it has always symbolically since, you know, pre-biblical times. I mean, I, one thing I did when I was reading the book was read all the old flood myths, which which, you know, considerably predate the Bible and you get back into... Sumerian uh, myths of that are essentially Noah uh, and the Ark, um, but yes, yeah, Faber is someone that that is still very present for me, and uh, I uh, and 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 yeah, and the flood myths are unavoidable, and they're they're so they're ingrained in us, and so I wanted to be able to have a, uh, try to have a conversation with with those myths as well, and their and their mytho- and the you know the symbolism of of them. 
I love his purchase in the art gallery and the way that that works out. <laughs> it's because when we first encounter it in the book, it's kind of a, huh? And I think it's a really great uh, piece of plotting on your part. I'm wondering how you discovered that, if that was always part of your uh, master plan for destroying the world. Uh, well, I knew that there was going to be a flood, and I knew there was going to be a canoe out. So the question was, how do you get the canoe into Mitchell's hands? <laughs> so I sort of worked backwards. And I originally had, in early drafts, I had a very different uh, scenario. But I thought that section of the novel, he acquires this canoe at an art gallery at the beginning of the second section, and, and that was a point where I wanted also to show how he's making this huge amount of money and he doesn't know how to spend it. He's having a kind of nervous breakdown, and uh, the only satisfaction he gets is from just throwing huge amounts of money around to prove that that he's you know valuable because no one takes him seriously. And so the the psycho canoe is part of that. Also, there was a real psycho canoe at my uh, summer camp where I was a canoe counselor, and that had a kind of totemic uh, power, I think, for me and and when I was writing the novel. You know, in the early sections of the novel, there's all these great parts that are really absurd. And when he's contemplating these absurd scenarios and he's sitting in these meetings, just spewing all this, these really grandiose world destruction pieces. And I think they come off really well because of the clarity you bring to them. It's very simply put. The book is very simply written. i like you to talk about using clarity, pairing clarity and absurdity. Yeah, well, a lot of absurdity comes out of the details, right? So it needs, needs to be really detailed for you to get at the, the humor of it and the craziness of a lot of these situations. But I think, you know, writing about scientific phenomena, um, geopolitical <laughs> subjects, um, finance, of course, um, you have to write in a very clear, accessible way. I mean, it's, it's, it's something I learned, you know, in my first job after college when I worked on the editorial staff of the New York Review of Books. And I, I remember my first weeks there, I was handed an uh, essay by a Nobel laureate in economics. And it was an essay about uh, GDP. <laughs> I hadn't taken any economics classes at college. I didn't know any of the terminology. And I told uh, the, my boss, the editor, I said, well, I'm the wrong you know, assistant to work on this thing. I don't know any of these terms. And he said, look, you don't have to have taken any economics classes here. And he took down from his, above his desk, he had all these reference books, uh, you know, Penguin Dictionary of Economics, Oxford, Amer Oxford uh, Dictionary of Economics, whatever. Encyclopedia of Economics and so on, and he's like, whenever he said, whenever you come across a word that you don't know, a term you don't know, um, just plug in that you know, read the definition, look it up in these books, read the definition, translate it into English, and go along. And so that's what I did. And I remember sending it back to, when Bob Silver's the editor sent it back to the uh, the writer with all these changes. Essentially, it was just translate. It was a work of translation, basically from the jargon to English. Um, the, the, the writer, who I will not name, um, said, oh, Bob, you know, this is wonderful. He Bob didn't say that I was involved in this. He just sent it back. And he said, oh, Bob, you're, you know, you're such a, you have such a genius economic mind. You're able to translate all of this into English. And, I, you know, and of course, it was just a matter of looking things up in the Penguin Dictionary of Economics. And so that taught me a really valuable lesson about writing 
about anything really, but especially about economics and um, you know and science and more technical issues, is that you just have to put it into English. You know, you just have to to, to translate it. It's a, it's about translating it, and I, and it always frustrates me that more writers don't try to do that. You know, especially novelists, I think, are very easily intimidated by writing about science or money. And but these are these are things that are so central to our lives and 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 such a central part of our society, especially now more than ever. That I I feel like it would it's such a waste that that there isn't more written about uh, these themes. And so, um, you know that that basic lesson is something I kept in mind as I was writing these sections. Well, it really shows in those uh, portions of the novel just are really enjoyable to read. And I think this too goes to your prose which seems very stripped down. I mean, there is not a single word in this novel that doesn't need to be there. And I'm guessing this is maybe did not pour off the tip of your pen, but was the result of some careful rewriting. Yeah, oh, it absolutely did a ton of rewriting in this novel. I mean, it, it, over five or six years. I mean, I wrote the first draft. The first draft was done um, in 2008, about two, early 2009, right around not long after my first novel came out. And then it was about three or four years of just rewriting. And, you know, there are pauses in there. But, um, yeah, I, and I rewrote a lot of it quite considerably. And also I, I would get ideas periodically about, you know, from reading something or having some conversation with somebody or some, some experience where I would, uh, you know, find something and say, oh, this would really work in this scene or this is a way to do this sentence. And, and so there was a lot of just kind of... Um, going back in and having these little, you know, little touch-ups here and there. But I think cumulatively over four or five years, that actually has a transforming effect. Um, so, yeah, it's important to me that everything matters, every, that every word matters and, and has a function, um, while avoiding a kind of that spare, you know, American realism that I feel like is so much in vogue now that I find tedious. You know, I want the language to be lively and exciting and strange, um, but not overly you know uh, indul- self-indulgent no I, no it is it is exciting and there's a, a you have a great feel of the slightly surreal in this novel there's these scenes like where he first meets his boss for future world named alec charnobyl <laughs> i think for a whole for a guy who's concerned with disaster what a perfect name yeah, I mean, I wondered if that was too much, but it, it just fit. You know, I couldn't, I experimented with other names, but that just came to me instantly. The second I conceived of the character, I don't know why, it just seemed perfect. And uh, there's, and also that there's something kind of so ignoble about him. You know, that he's the opposite of noble. Um, it was a kind of Pinchonian name, I guess. He does that kind of stuff all the time. But uh, yeah, it's important to have this element of surrealism. I wanted to, to set up from the very first pages a sense that things were going to get really strange. And in that way, I, I think it has a lot to, in common uh, with my first novel, where it starts in a place of sort of hyper-realism, and then it moves very quickly into this kind of stranger, slightly fantastical realm, and, but, but in degree, you know, by degrees so that it's never jarring. So I needed enough, uh, there needed to be enough kind of ominous premonitions uh, early on so that when the actual storm happens, it wasn't too jarring. You give us a bit of math in the novel, some some equations. I have to ask you, were those real, and did who did you uh, have your your math your math your quant friends uh, dream those up? 
Well, the, there is a little math in the book because I think it's important. You know, I think the novelist's job, whether whether he's writing about uh, math or writing about you know a person who's a different gender than the writer or writing about someone who's a different generation than you, uh, the job is to bring it off with enough authority that the reader buys it and doesn't ask too many questions. And so I had to learn enough math. I mean, I was pretty good at math in high school, but I sort of stopped my education there. So I had to learn enough math uh, for it to be convincing and for Mitchell to be a convincing math genius. And I felt like to cinch the deal, I needed one crazy algorithm uh, that he's designed to be in there. So I found one after looking through textbook, probability textbooks and annuity textbooks for a long time. So it's a real equation. It's not exactly, uh, doesn't necessarily describe what it's supposed to describe in, in the book, but it was the scariest uh, equation I could find. And I've since, yeah, I showed it to some mathematicians and they say, yes, this is a real equation, but whether the variables match up in exactly the way that they're described in the, in the book uh, is maybe another story. Well, that's because you get that story is called fiction. Right, exactly. <laughs> as a fiction so writer, to, you're allowed some some leeway there. Yeah, it has to look real. That's all. Uh, I love uh, his parents, Mitchell's parents, and and they're in the Midwest, and uh, they have the Zuckerminiums. <laughs> Talk about that's a just a, a real fun little uh, back note. Yeah, so they, they also, the, the, the parents kind of combine these same elements of Mitchell's character in that they're um, making a profit off of woe, in that they, the father at least is selling these um, slum, you know, he's a slum lord, selling these horrible buildings to, to poor people who can't um, afford anything else. And the father is haunted by having fled during the Hungarian Revolution. He's a Hungarian immigrant, and so he has this kind of old world anxiety and, and dread that's built into him. Um, but he's also become this, this American salesman in his own way. And the mother is a Midwestern girl who's extremely, um, you know, has that Midwestern sense of logic and rationality and order. And she's not as convinced by all of Mitchell's crazy anxieties. And they, they were originally much larger part of the story I, I i threw out a lot of um a lot of pages about the parents but i felt you needed a little sense of them you needed a sense of mitchell's childhood uh to help understand mitchell a little bit but but more than a little might have might have uh, tipped the tipped the scales so i i preserved them um but they're less central than than i had originally thought they needed to be because i realized that a lot of what i was using them for was already there in Mitchell's character, but that's sort of how I work. I have to write a lot more than I need in order to, to work out the story for myself before I can figure out um, what it is, and, and so that until the, the details that I do have um, are rich enough that I can then sort of tear away the scaffolding, which, which is what I did. You're a chip away from the stone to find the, uh, the sculpture within guy then. Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> As you wrote this book, I'd like you to talk about using the math in your premise and the humor in your premise to help create these characters and uh, how the two interacted. Well, I I wanted their um, I wanted them to be driven by math. I, you need math to be able to understand the nature of these problems, and so it's one thing to say 
you know, I'm worried about um, a hurricane hitting New York. Uh, but, you know, to understand the nature of that fear, you really have to get into math, statistics. You have to understand probability. So it seemed essential to me. I didn't realize that when I first was writing the novel exactly. But as I went along, I realized to get into the heart of the matter, you know, to get into it uh, in a deep and serious way, you needed to do a little math. You needed to understand odds and, and probability. So that was crucial to me. And I feel like it, the story wouldn't come off if you didn't have a sense of a, of a mathematical rigor as, as a kind of substrate um, beneath these sort of other sort of more philosophical um, concerns and, 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 and debates that are in the book. You needed a sense of, of mathematical rigor. And I, and that was very important to me that that was not only an aspect of the story, but was really embedded in Mitchell's character and to some extent into in Jane's character as well. She's a serious mathematician too, but just uses the math to different ends. And it was, I was happy to see you do answer the question about the asteroid hitting the Earth. Yeah, that's one fear that we don't need to have. <laughs> and I was very concerned about asteroids hitting the Earth for a long time, but that, that is very, uh, very, very, very low on the, on the totem pole of things to be terrified about. The, the end of the book takes us in a, in a, a interesting direction. And without telling too much, I'd like you to just talk about, again, the kind of modulations you take your character through, because it's, it's, I think, essential to the reading experience of this book to, to come to that kind of, to the place where you take us to. Yeah, I, I mean, I really wanted to explore these ideas as, as deeply and profoundly as I, as I could. And so there's one thing to have, you know, to have all these fears, then a fear is realized, and then you, you know, the character, Mitchell, goes through it, comes out a different person, and I think a lot of books might end right there. But I wanted to go a bit further and, and, and try to follow him a little bit beyond that. And so, you know, in a typical kind of like a Hollywood production, he would emerge from the storm, triumphant, prophet, uh, you know, girlfriend, you name it. And, and I didn't feel like that was realistic. And I, I feel like we live in this, this time of so much uncertainty and that there is no, um, you know, certain fate for us. We don't really know where we're going. We don't really know. And we don't really know how to, you know, there's no right answer about how we should respond to um, this, this time of anxiety. And, the, and you know, and, and so I felt that I wanted an ending to be ambivalent and, and to reflect the complexity of, of these issues. And I feel like when a novel is really, you know, great novels, novels that I admire, address big ideas and big themes but don't necessarily try to prescribe some polemic answer, you know, and I really wanted to avoid that type of novel where you come out and feel saying, well, geez, all I have to do is recycle more and we won't have, you know, environmental disaster, that kind of thing. Or like, oh, we have to urge our, our governments to, to, you know, take a stand and we won't end up in this hell. And I feel like that whole view of, of, of things is really um, antiquated. And I think we're in a much more complex uh, and more interesting place. And so I wanted the ending, yeah, again, without getting into, into the details too much, I wanted the ending to reflect the complexity of, of I think, where we are and, and where we're going. 
Well, earlier on, you say uh, disasters were like crime scenes, and afterwards, there's a lot of waiting around. Right. And so, <laughs> so the ending, in, in a certain sense, is he's, Mitchell's waiting around for, for the next thing. But, it's, but I think he's also been transformed and, 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 and had some revelations along the way. And those are things that I had to piece out myself. I didn't, I didn't write the novel knowing where it was going to go. I knew where it was going to go up to a certain point. But the third section... I think gets into the next uh, next chapter, and and that's a lot more mysterious uh, and puzzling. Well, two, we in a novel about apocalypse, and we always imagine apocalypse to be on a big scale, that's destroying the world. But uh, we all experience personal apocalypses, and those are actually much more disturbing. Yeah, and that's the that's sort of central theme of the novel is is you know, the the convenience of obsessing about vast, abstract, worst-case scenarios is that it prevents you from having to deal with the crises in your own life, which uh, you could argue are mu- have much higher stakes. <laughs> and so that's, uh, you know, I think it's a lot easier, for, you know, to go online and just look at the USGS site about the Yellowstone volcano for hours than to, you know, work on your relationship with your spouse say or your your parents or your children that kind of thing and so uh that's a big part of the novel for me is about the intersection of the public and the private and and these vast scenarios and the really personal crises that are a lot more difficult to solve or often seem a lot more difficult to solve than um you know blocking an asteroid from hitting the planet on the other hand when uh yellowstone was heating up uh, a few years ago I, I was going, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> right, yeah, this is it. We're all going to go out together. <laughs> I've been speaking with Nathaniel Rich. His new novel is Odds Against Tomorrow. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thanks so much for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.